0: Well, first off, thank you guys for staying, even after he said we're going to cover 60 verses this morning. That's an improvement from the first service. Um, I saw some adults like sneaking out with the first through third grade, I think, first service, but it looks like you guys stayed, and so thank you. I'm going to try to not make you late for work tomorrow. Um, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill, and you've joined us as we're working through the book of Acts. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've actually gotten into the section of the book of Acts, where we are going to talk about Stephen, and we're in the narrative of Stephen. And if we were to look at this from kind of a 30,000-foot view, we can take this narrative of Stephen, and we can kind of break it into four big parts. Now, each of these is going to kind of have a subpart to it that we're going to talk about a little bit, but we basically see that Stephen is appointed, that Stephen is falsely accused. We've seen those already. And then today, we're going to see Stephen gives his response to the accusations, and we're going to see that the messenger, Stephen himself, is going to become the message of the gospel that he has proclaimed. And so if we look at these in a little more detail to get a running start into today, because we're not going to understand today unless we have a true context of what's been going on. When we look at Stephen being appointed, we need to remember what was going on when Stephen was called. Um, You guys may remember that everyone was together. They were selling their possessions. They had everything in common. They were taking care of these widows that needed the church for their, their basic needs, right? They needed food. They needed clothing. They needed all of these things. And we see that there is a distribution of all of these things that the church had in common to the widows, But then we see that apparently all of the widows weren't being treated equally, or at least felt like they weren't being treated equally. Some of the people saw some discrepancies. And so the decision was made that they were going to appoint some men that were going to come into the fold of the ministers and ministry, and they were going to do the ministry of service. They were going to be the ones, if we go back and look at the original text, remember we had those that said that we're, uh, we're going to appoint some, and the word used there, the phrase used there, was they were going to wait tables essentially, and that wasn't a demeaning task. That was that they were going to do the ministry of service, right? And, and so Stephen was one of these. And we see that after Stephen was appointed, he wasn't just given a position, He was actually extraordinarily effective in this position. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 8 of Acts speaks to this. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so it doesn't sound like Stephen is just distributing goods. It's not like Stephen is just giving out money and distributing things, that he is actively doing the full work of the gospel, and that God is using him through the power of the Holy Spirit to do these amazing works and these signs to draw people to Christ, that he's living out this ministry that he's called to. And we found as we kept going that even temple workers were actually being converted as a result of the ministry of Stephen. And all of these things that were happening were great. They were amazing. They were powerful things. Unless you put all of your hope, trust, faith in the religiosity of the time. Because there were some people that looked at the gospel as hostile to their way of life think about this if you were all into uh, the things that you did the, into serving god by acts of uh, of gaining grace from god by the things that you did the message of the gospel seems quite hostile and we see this group of people emerge over the last couple of weeks they were called the freedmen in scripture Now, who these are, they're actually descendants of uh, indentured servants, slaves, not maybe in the way that you think of the word um, today, but they were working off debt in Rome in the first century BC and even before. And we get to the first century BC, and some of these people were released, not because they had worked off their debt, though some had. Some of these freedmen were actually released because General Pompey looked at these and said they won't do any work. They're consumed with their religious fervor. They have an excuse for everything. All that they do is say, because of their God, because of their religion, because of their acts, they can't do these things. And they're actually released because they're never gonna work off their debt. And these freedmen are the descendants of those that had this strong religious fervor. And so we see where these people come from. And it's these people who begin to start complaining about Stephen and the gospel. Look at Acts 6.9. It said, Then some of these people who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen rose and disputed with Stephen. So we talked about this group last week. Um, these are those descendants of the freedmen. They were pro-tradition. We need to remember this. They were pro-law. They were very pro-temple. Everything that they put their hope and their trust in were these things, these traditions. It was that they had their assurance in the fact that they had a temple, that they had a land, that they had a law, that they had these forefathers of the faith, that they had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they had Moses, and they had all of these people that they traced their spiritual lineage through. And they put a lot of faith in that, and they had a lot of pride in that. But they did not like the message of the gospel. And so they tried to stand up against this message of the gospel. They they tried to refute it, but there's only one problem. We saw in Acts 6:10 what happened. It said, "But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, and that's talking about Stephen, was speaking." So they couldn't withstand it. They couldn't they couldn't find a way to block it. Withstand here is kind of a defensive word. It's like they couldn't stand against it. And there's a good reason why, because Jesus said that this would happen. Go back and look at Luke 21. Uh, Luke chapter 21 talks about persecution and it talks about death and famines and people getting arrested and all of these terrible things. And you get to verse 13 and it says, you'll bear testimony about me. And now look what 14 and 15 said. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to what? Withstand or contradict. There's a reason that they can't stand against the message of the gospel. There's a reason that they can't stand against the message of Stephen because it's the very message of Christ. And so they're trying with all that they have to stand against this. They're trying with all that they have to refute this, to push down this movement. And once they get to a point that they can't do anything else, they do what any good politician or six-year-old would do. They start making up lies and calling names because they've resorted to that. Once your argument's over, what do you do? You start belittling people and demeaning people. I wish I were kidding about the adults that lead us. Um, But but this is what happened. Look at Acts chapter 6, and let's look at what played out here. In verse 11, it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came um, upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses, people who are willing to lie, who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, why did I go back and give us a running start when we're already going to try to cover all of chapter 7? Here's why. Because if you don't understand what chapter 7 is a response to, you're not going to get chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the response to this accusation. Because 7 starts, verse 1 says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And so what the high priest is saying is, hey, is this message about destroying the temple? Hey, is this message about upheaving everything that we put our trust and hope in? Hey, is Jesus of Nazareth really going to destroy all of this? We've already crucified him, but is this message going to continue on? Are you guys going to take everything down? And it appears that he's given Stephen the opportunity to give a defense, Commentators are kind of split on this, and I am too. Was he already condemned, and they were just doing this as a formality? Were they going to let him talk his way out of this? I'm not sure. But either way, what we have to understand is that the message that follows is one of the most incredible sermons that we see in the New Testament. When you look at this on the surface, it seems really strange. It doesn't seem like he's actually answering the question. You would think that what he was going to say was, no, not really. That's not what we're talking about. All of this is a type and picture. And you think that he would go into all of these things. But we have to remember his audience. He's talking to Jewish leaders. He's talking to people who had a tremendous amount of religious fervor. He's talking to people that knew the Old Testament. He's talking to people that knew of the patriarchs, that knew the law, that understood the temple. And as he begins laying out what, on the surface, looks like simply a history lesson, he's giving a master class in evangelism, meeting people where they are to share the good news of Christ. So let's dive in and let's see what scriptures have for us today. So in Stephen's response, understand that I'm not going to be able to go through all 60 of these verses line by line because we really would be here all day. I do want you to go home. I want you to read this. But what I'm going to do is pull some things out so that we can see what Stephen's actually doing. If you read through the first 40 or so of these verses, we find that Stephen introduces us to eight different people. He introduces us to Abraham, Isaac jacob joseph moses joshua david and solomon these eight are introduced for a very very specific reason and for us to understand what this reason is we need to go back and we need to start looking at what these men had in common what would stephen be trying to point these religious leaders to by even mentioning these names does that make sense You guys know that if you hear the name of someone, very often you associate them to maybe somebody you know with what they do, what they're known for, things like that. And so what Stephen's doing is he's going through and mentioning these names and he's kind of dropping some information about these names to begin to get the minds of the people who are bringing these false accusations to begin to see the point of the message of the gospel. Does that make sense? So we're going to see all of this begin to lay out. In order to see the message that Stephen is preaching in this, we have to go back and we have to look at these men. And so the very first thing that we see that they have in common is that God was near and gracious to them and his people long before the things that they put their hope in. Long before there was ever a temple, long before they had these traditions, long before all of these things that they're accusing Stephen of wanting to destroy, long before that happened, God was still gracious to them. Now, we can see this in basic chronology. Like You guys know that we don't have the temple built until we get to Solomon, and Stephen's actually going to address that in a bit. But we know, chronologically speaking, that there was no temple. We know that there's a law at a point in this with Moses. We know that there's a tabernacle there also. And then we get to the temple whenever we get to Solomon. But chronologically speaking, we know that right off the bat. But when we start digging into this, we see Stephen's emphasis on geography, Stephen's emphasis on setting. Look at this. Verse 2 says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, is there a temple? No, in Mesopotamia, did they even have the tabernacle? No, no promised land was acquired. There was no law at this time. Verse four says, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living, yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length. So there's no promised land here. Abraham doesn't have any inheritance, but yet what are we seeing? We're seeing that God is gracious to him before any of these things that the religious leaders had put their trust in. Keeps going, verse nine. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Even in Egypt, what's true about Joseph? God was with him. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. What is that showing you? That God is already beginning to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, that he would have descendants, right? That all of these things would come to fruition before he even had a child. These things were promised to him. And we see the promise beginning to come to fruition in captivity in Egypt. We we see all of these things beginning to play out, and it's beginning to show that God is always faithful and with his people. That this isn't about the temple, that this isn't about the law. It's about something much bigger than that, and it moves on to talk about Moses. And as we go through bringing attention to Moses, you should remember about Moses Bringing the people out of Egypt and the miraculous things that happened there. As he talks about David, we should remember his affair with Bathsheba and the fact that he repents of that, that he turns back to God. And this was before there was even a temple. And we see finally when we get to Solomon, that should have piqued our interest and said, hey, there's a temple here. But what does Stephen emphasize in verse 47? But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes something from the dedication of the temple. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things? What is Stephen saying here, and what is he not saying here? Well, first off, he's he's not saying that the temple doesn't matter. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the law doesn't matter. He's not saying that the patriarchs doesn't matter. He's not saying that the law of Moses doesn't matter. He doesn't, he's not saying that all of these things are completely irrelevant. But what he is saying is that you must remember that God moved before and outside of these things. And so if you think that you have a monopoly on God because you have the temple, you are wrong. You're putting your faith in the wrong thing. Some commentators begin to, to talk around this topic. John Stott said this: "A single thread runs right through the first part of his defense. It is that God that the God of Israel is a pilgrim God, who is not restricted to any one place, if he has any home on Earth, it's with his people that he lives. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful quote that God is not confined to a place, to a geography. If God dwells anywhere, he dwells with his people. And one of my favorite quotes is James Montgomery Boyce. He said this, so it's not as if Abraham was in Mesopotamia and God, perhaps from Mount Zion, many hundreds of miles away, shouted to him, Abraham, come over here. I want you to come to Palestine. Rather, God appeared to him right there in Mesopotamia. In all of his glory. This history lesson is designed to make us, this history lesson is designed to make them think of all of these stories of Israel's past and see how God moved that God moved in Egypt, that God moved at the Red Sea, that God moved in the wilderness, that God moved when there was no land, when there was no temple, when there was no law yet, that God was still a faithful God, that God was still interacting with his people, that God was still moving his people, guiding his people, leading his people. And they didn't understand that. They didn't see that. And so Stephen's not belittling these things. What he's doing is he's beginning to point to something else. He's beginning to say that these men pointed to something else. They pointed to Christ. You see, this is something that we need to all make sure that we understand. This is something that we can take away from this right away. We need to have the assurance that the spirit of a holy and righteous God dwells with those of us who are redeemed. You know that it's not about this place. Did you know that the only reason that this room is even special is because those of us that are redeemed gather together under the banner of Christ. This room is not a church when we're not here. We are the church. And we have to understand that. We don't need to put value in places where there shouldn't be an extreme amount of value. The value here is that we gather together in community to praise our Lord. That we come together to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to walk with one another. That's what makes this place special. It's because of uh, uh, the fact that we meet here. Guys, if we were to lock these doors tomorrow and we were to decide to meet in the parking lot of the YMCA, that place would be just as special as this room. Because God is there, because his people are there, because we're together in worship. And that's something that we have to understand. And this brings us to our next point, the next thing that we see in common with these men. Each one was invited to trust in God's wisdom and way of redemption. Each one of them was. They were invited to trust God individually. Think about these men. Think about the life that they lived. Think about God's promises to them. Stephen's reminding us as we go through this passage of these things. Verse three even starts laying this out about the account of the call to obedience of Abraham. Look at this. Verse three says, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And we know from the story what happens. Abraham eventually responds. Abraham goes, Abraham moves. What does that show? That Abraham is responding in faith to the promise that God made before he saw any evidence of anything, before he saw a land, before he understood where his descendants would come from. He responded in trust and faith. And we see in Genesis 12 and 15 that he trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's that trust, it's that faith. Think about Abraham's obedience after that. Think about after he's had Isaac and God calls him to go and sacrifice Isaac. What does he do? He he goes to, to follow through with this. And what he says is an amazing thing. The question is posed, where's the sacrifice? And what does he say? Abraham says, God will provide. And then he goes a step further. Abraham's lips say, we are going to go to worship and me and my son are gonna come back. He knew what he was called to do. He knew that he was called to go and sacrifice, but he had enough faith in God and in his promises that he knew somehow, some way, I don't know if he was gonna, uh, you believe God was just gonna resurrect his son, what was gonna happen, I don't know. But he went with total confidence that he was gonna follow through with God's command and he also had total confidence that his son was coming back with him. And this was before he had any evidence that this would happen. Think about Moses in the wilderness and the way that he responded. Think about the burning bush experience. Yes, Moses had lots of excuses. And I don't speak well. I can't do this. But what does he do? He responds in faith before he saw anything. Before he saw these things come to fruition. Think about Joseph in Egypt. Think about all of these things that happened in the Old Testament where God appears to his people before there is any evidence and they respond. And this is the very definition of faith. And what Stephen is saying is make sure that you don't put all of your value, make sure that you don't put everything in these things because you must understand that they all point to something greater. And this brings us to our third point. It says, each of these characters pointed to the way that we are to live and to the one in whom we are to place our trust. Every one of them pointed to Jesus. We've heard this at Mars before. Um, Jack's used this whole line before. I know that I've heard Kyle say these before. Neil has said these things before. I've said these things before. But when we look at these men, we need to understand how they point to Jesus. We know that Jesus is the true and better Abraham because Jesus left his father and came to a land, to a distant country for the sake of nations, which is similar to what Abraham did. But Jesus didn't take everything into his own hands. He submitted his will perfectly to the father and trusted so that nations may be blessed through him. He's the true and better Isaac. He's the true joy. Remember, Isaac means laughter. He's the true and better Isaac because he brings perfect joy to his people and he's the better Isaac in that when Isaac was laid down to sacrifice, he was pardoned, but Jesus laid down his life to be sacrificed so that we could be blessed. He's the true and better Jacob who didn't swindle his brother out of a blessing, but instead gave up his blessing so that his brothers can be blessed. He's the true and better Joseph who brings provision and hope to a people living in famine. He's the true and better Moses. He's our true and better redeemer that bridges the gap between God and man. He's the true and better Joshua, our faithful servant leading us into the promised land. He's the true and better David. He's the victorious king who conquered sin and death. And he's the true and better Solomon, the very wisdom of God and the temple of God himself. And so when he's going through these, what should begin to happen is he should, they should begin to see all of these types and these pictures of Messiah, that all of these things pointed to Messiah, that the temple itself, that the law, that everything points to the one who is to come. And it should have pointed to them that they had their hope and their trust in the wrong location. It was in the things that God provided instead of in the God who provided them. They put their hope and trust in all of these pictures of Messiah instead of in Messiah. That should have been convicting. That should have been crushing. Because what Stephen shows is that every single page of Scripture had always been about Jesus. It had always been. That's what it was about. And what this is showing is very much what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Look at this. John chapter 5, 39. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. That they tried to find their salvation in things, not understanding that all of these things pointed to the true source of of their salvation. The problem with them is, is that they can't see the forest for the trees. They're missing the point. And if this wouldn't have made them mad enough, Stephen decided not to stop there. He decides that he's going to go even further. And so what begins to happen is really interesting when you go through and kind of dissect this. What we're going to see is some implications because of what Stephen has said. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work through these implications backwards. We're going to see what Stephen said, and we're going to move them in level of importance, and we're going to end with the most important implication that Stephen gives. So what is the first thing that Stephen is telling them? You rejected the righteous one that each of these characters pointed to. You've rejected the righteous one that each of these characters have pointed to. You see your tradition, your fathers in the faith. You see all of these things. You're looking at them. You're saying that you know them. But the truth is, is that you rejected who they pointed to. And look at this. Verse 51, Stephen says this. And this should sound familiar to some of you um, who were with us here as we studied through the book of Exodus. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What is he doing right now? He's taking them and equating them with a story that they would have been very familiar with. He's taking them and equating them to a story when when the people of Israel rejected God's messenger, when the people of Israel rejected what God was doing. And he's saying, you are those people. You're missing what God's doing. You're missing the point. These people were missing everything because they did not understand the message. They didn't understand that it was about something bigger. And this brings us to the next implication. You rejected Jesus and instead put your trust in the temple and your traditions. They had forgotten that the law, that the temple, that the traditions, that the patriarchs all pointed to one who would come. See, they forgot Deuteronomy 18.15 that said this. This is Moses speaking, the one who they say that they're revering and upholding. He said this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And this is what Stephen grabs hold to in verse 37, and he quotes, and he says this. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Stephen doesn't leave it the question at all. He doesn't like leave it up to chance that they're gonna remember that quote from Moses. He goes ahead and brings it out. And he goes on to make this even worse. As we start going back through this, we see in verse 39, Stephen says something else. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heaven. Do you see that this is the same thing that's happening here? What Stephen's pointing out is that you guys are rejoicing in what you've created. You're rejoicing in what you've taken the tradition and moved it to mean. You're rejoicing in this whole law that you've built around the message of the prophets. You're rejoicing in your own religiosity. And the gospel is hostile to that. And that's why you can't accept it. Israel rejected him. Now the freedmen are doing the very same thing. Look at this, John 5, 39 through 40 and 46. We alluded to this before. Let's read a little bit further. You remember I mentioned this before, but I didn't go all the way. Listen to this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. But look at this next part. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. This is exactly what Jesus was warning of. They didn't listen to them then and they're not listening now. And what this implies, think about this. Think about what's being said. What this implies would be the most painful thing that they could have heard. Because of this, therefore, you will not experience the nearness of God. You will not experience the nearness of God. What he's saying is that you've missed it all. You've missed everything. You've missed the point. And because of that, no matter your level of religiosity, you'll never see peace. No matter your level of religiosity, you'll never have hope. You'll never have assurance. You've missed everything. And see, this is the part of the story that we read, and we want to see them hit their knees. We want to see them repent. We want to see them remember um, what Jesus said in John chapter five, that there was this warning that 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 they don't understand. And we want to see them turn from their ways. But let's see what they did instead. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed in the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. These men rejected the gospel wholeheartedly. And get get this picture as Stephen is proclaiming these things. It actually says they stopped their ears and rushed him. They're so hostile that they won't even hear the gospel. And what ends up happening is that they rush and they take this messenger of the gospel because they respect uh, rejected Jesus. They rejected the message. They're going to reject the messengers of the gospel too. And so they show the height of their rejection, the height of their hostility toward the gospel by taking this messenger and killing him. But the thing that they don't count on is that this messenger of the gospel, even in death, becomes the message of the gospel itself. See, it's scary to think about this. The level of hate, the level of animosity, the level of rejection that these men had by carrying this out. But do you also see that this is beautiful? Do you also see the beauty in this? And that Stephen lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, that he served in a manner worthy of the gospel, and here he died in a manner worthy of the gospel. How is that? How is it that he died in a manner worthy of the gospel? when he's dying, when he's being stoned, when he's going to sleep, when he's giving himself, what is he concerned with? He's not concerned with his own life. He's concerned about those who are murdering him. He's pleading for their forgiveness. It would be really, really cool if we could go through and see all of these men Trace them after this instance. But we can't do that with all of them. We can't do that with one. See, the the scriptures mention that there was a young man here. A young man that was part of the Sanhedrin. A young man that the, the clothes were laid at his feet. We do know what ultimately happens to him. We're going to be introduced to him later, but he's going to be introduced under a brand new name. We're going to know him as Paul. I don't know this. Think about the impact that a situation like this would have had on you. I wonder if Stephen, after he's knocked off of his horse, after he's blinded, after he's... Converted after Saul goes through all of these things and gets a new name. I wonder if he remembered this moment. I wonder if he remembered the fervor that Stephen lived with. I wonder if he remembered this sacrifice. I wonder what this spoke to him. I wonder if it's going to speak to us today. I wonder those things. But what we have to always remember is that this message is not to point us to Stephen. This message is to point us to the one that Stephen was pointing to. Because if we take Stephen and we revere him, we're doing the very same thing the freedman did. We're looking at this type and picture instead of the real thing. So we look at Stephen, yes. We see his life, yes. Yes. But we don't look to Stephen, we look through Stephen to the one that he was pointing to, which is Jesus. Do you now see what Stephen did in this sermon? Do you now see why he answered the way that he did? Remember, he was accused of demeaning the law and the temple and the prophets. What Stephen was saying is, no, they're very important. And let me show you why. It's because they're a type, a picture, a shadow. The temple is, the law is, the patriarchs are. are they're all pointing to something else. They're pointing to Christ. Now, there's a whole lot of things that we can take home from this. <laughs> we, there's so much that we didn't even get to cover, but I think that there are three things that we can go home and talk about with our family and our friends and that we can personally meditate on from this. And, and I think that the first one, is that example of Stephen. We must know that we are to preach the gospel with our lives, that, that we're to be an example, that we're to be effective as disciple makers, that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that we are to live our lives pointing to Christ as Stephen did, not pointing to Stephen but pointing to our Messiah, that we are to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Not that we're perfect, but that when we fall, we admit that, we repent of those things, and we express how gracious and good God is and his forgiveness and his mercy. And we get lifted up by the Spirit and we keep moving on that we continue to proclaim the goodness of the gospel, that we proclaim the impact the gospel has had on our lives. And I think that we learn that from this story. The next thing I think that we need to take home and chew on a little bit is a question. Where is your hope and faith? Where is my hope and faith? Because don't think that this was something exclusive to the freedmen. Tell me, is it possible for us in the year 2024 to get in a place where we have our hope and faith and how many Christian books we've read and how many verses of the Bible that we've memorized of how often we meet in this room on Sunday morning of how often we meet with our small groups of all of those things. And none of those things are bad. But we need to make sure that we understand that our hope and our faith and our trust can't be in those things. Those things are the response of our lives because our hope and our faith and our trust is in Christ. Does that make sense? You don't come here to be saved. You come here and meet together because you are. You don't do the work of the gospel to be saved. You do the work of the gospel because you are redeemed. You don't search the scriptures so that you might find salvation. You search the scriptures because salvation has found you. Make sure we have that order correct. That our faith and our hope and our trust is only in the person of Christ. And then the third thing I think we learn from the freedmen. What are you going to do with this message? What are you? going to do with this message? What am I going to do with this message? See, you're always going to respond to the gospel. The question is, how will you respond? Have you responded in faith? Have you responded by laying down your life? Or do you lift up your fist to God and say, no, I cannot respond to this message. I must reject this message because it requires submission to something other than me. I cannot accept this message because it requires me to say that everything I found my value in is wrong. I can't accept this message because it requires of me submission and hope and trust outside of myself. Myself is my temple. I am my law. I am my hope. I take care of all of this. Is that how you are going to respond today? Or will you lay down your life? Will you bend your knee? Will you bow your head? It's submission to the lordship of Christ, laying down all of your idols, everything between you and God, and complete submission to the hope that he brings by his grace. There's only two responses. What are you going to do with that? The Bible says if you confess Jesus with your lips and believe in your heart that you will be saved, not might, not can be. It also says that today can be the day of your salvation. What are you going to do with this message today? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that it cuts and it heals. Lord, I thank you for the conviction found in these stories, these things that that through your sovereign will you've inspired to be penned so that we can study in your scriptures. Lord, I thank you that we can look at the story of, of Stephen and examine ourselves, but I'm thankful that it ultimately points to you. Lord, I pray that we as the people of Mars Hill, we examine our lives, we open ourselves to the examination of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, we are a church that that is known very, very well, within us anyway, that we hold the word of God in extreme high esteem. We study the way that we do for a reason, we preach the way that we do for a reason, But Lord, let us never get stuck in equating knowledge of you for service for you. Lord, I pray that you move us as a people to be messengers of your gospel and not just information. Lord, let our hearts be pierced for the world around us to proclaim the goodness of your gospel. But we know that everyone's not gonna accept because the world is hostile to you. The world is hostile to your gospel. But Lord, I pray that you use us as the means by which you may draw some to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you help us never hold this place or what we do as an idol. I love this church. I love this body. It's been a huge blessing to me and my family, but Lord, never let me hold it ahead of you. So, Lord, I pray that we understand that we gather together not to earn your favor, but because of what you've done in our lives. Let us be a body that is not known for our knowledge, but known. For being a people that shares the gospel, that serves well, that shows you to the world around us. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that have never submitted their lives to you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit convict them and move in their lives. Lord, that you show your grace to them and that they respond in faith to who you are just as we saw Abraham do and Moses do and all of these people, all of these amazing stories in the Old Testament. It's always been about faith in you. So Lord, I pray that some are added to the number of the church today through your word and by the power of your spirit. I thank you again for your goodness. In Jesus' name.